Have you ever gone through an identity crisis? This German psychologist, Eric Erickson, coined the term in the mid-1900s. He did spell Eric right, by the way. An identity crisis describes a time in one's life when they're faced with confusion about their identity, role, and purpose in the world. Who are they? What is their sense of self? Where do they belong? How do others perceive them? I think we know that secular psychology, which has as its foundation atheistic humanism, will take a concept like this and just run with it to try and explain it where it came from apart from God or sin, and they don't get very far. We don't really buy their explanations. But just a basic observation of human behavior will lead you to conclude that some people do go through something that can be described as a type of identity crisis. I think we all can relate to the aging adolescent. Their mind is developing, their body is changing, the world is enlarging. They're approaching this looming threat of survival when they will be thrust out of their home and forced to live on their own in the world. It only seems natural for them to wonder how they will fit in. Will they fit in? Who will they be? Who do they want to be? What will be their place in this world? How do you answer such questions of identity? The world says, look inward. Look inside of you. Search your deepest desires. Define your own truth. You decide who you want to be. But anyone who who tries to understand their purpose and place in this world, divorced from their creator, is only going to find frustration and disappointment. Instead, you can only understand your purpose and place in relation to God. God's one who gives us our identity. He defines it because he made us. And so to God, who are we? We're his children, made in his image, made to walk in his ways, made to reflect his glory. After the fall, though, we don't do that. We've rejected our identity before God. We seek to form a sense of self that's cut off from God. But even still, God in love sent his son Christ to live for us, to die for us, to rise again, that we might be saved, reconciled, redeemed, that our identity before God might be restored. We might become in Christ sons and daughters of God again. Only in Christ can we truly be who God made us to be, that is God-glorifying image bearers. And so it's only in Christ that you'll find your true sense of identity as God has defined it. It's only when you live in right relation to God that you'll understand your your purpose and your place in this world. And far from an identity crisis, you'll have identity peace. You you know who you are. You're secure in Christ. We're going to dwell more on this notion of identity this morning. But I tell you what, if, if you want to see one person who never went through any sort of an identity crisis, who always lived in right relation to God, and who perfectly understood his purpose and place in the world at all times, Look no further than Jesus. You know, some throughout history have suggested that Jesus went through this existential identity crisis. They surmised that he didn't even know he was the chosen Messiah, that he was just a man, an ordinary man, but it wasn't until the Spirit came upon him at his baptism that he became the God-man and then realized he's supposed to be the Messiah. And you won't even get the slightest hint of that from the actual text of the New Testament. And to the contrary, the true role and identity of Jesus as the Messiah was was determined before he was even born. And there's not a shred of evidence to suggest he wasn't always aware of this. The one only glimpse we get of Jesus in his adolescence is from Luke 2, age 12. He's at the temple. 
And even at that young age, he already knows he's the son of God. In the mind of Jesus, his identity was never in doubt. His purpose and place in the world was never in doubt. He was born as the the God-man, the divine Messiah, born to do the Father's will, and he did just that. It is true, though, that Jesus kept his full identity concealed for most of his life. Only a select few were allowed to know the true story of his birth and his true identity as Emmanuel, God with us. Most were kept in the dark. That would continue for 30 years. Only when the fullness of time came in God's plan was the identity of this man, Jesus, ready to be revealed. He is not just a man, he's the God-man. Even then, most would not have eyes to see him. Most today still don't have eyes to see him. Nevertheless, God the Father was ready to literally tear open heaven and let the world know that his son, the Messiah, has come in the person of Jesus. And this great identity reveal took place at his baptism. By no means did Jesus become the Messiah or the God-man at his baptism. But that's when the veil began to be lifted on who he really is and what he really came to do. And that is what we will be considering this morning. So take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3. So far, Matthew, in his gospel, has thoroughly set the stage for the the arrival of Jesus. Chapters 1 and 2, he details his supernatural birth. He lets us know the -the behind-the-scenes look at who Jesus was from birth. Then throughout chapter 3, he tells us of his predecessor, John the Baptist. John came to make ready the way of the Lord. But now, the end of chapter 3, finally... The adult Jesus comes on the scene. He's ready to begin his active ministry. We all, I think, already know where that active ministry ends. It ends on the cross. And the cross naturally gets most of our attention since that's where the Lamb of God was slain to make atonement for our sins. We'll we'll spend plenty of time thinking on the wonder and the power of the cross throughout Matthew's gospel. But given the fact that all four Gospels begin their retelling of the ministry of Jesus right here with his baptism by John, I'd say that's worth considering too. And that's what we have here at the end of chapter 3. It's going to set the stage for the rest of Matthew's Gospel. It's the beginning point of Christ's active ministry. Let's read the passage now. Follow along, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. In Matthew's Gospel, giving us our first glimpse of the adult Christ Matthew 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Verse 13 here sets the stage. The setting is familiar to us from the previous passage, whereby the Jordan River 
with the, the baptism ministry of John the Baptist. And by way of background, it's worth recalling that Jesus and John were related. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, were called relatives in Luke's gospel. Most likely it means they were cousins, which would mean John and Jesus would be second cousins. They both had miraculous birth stories. God was doing something marvelous through both of them. But Jesus and John did not grow up together. John would be raised in the hill country of Judea. Jesus would be raised in the north, Nazareth of Galilee. Whether they interacted much as they grew up, we we just don't know. We do know, though, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 80, that when John matured, he went away to the desert. He lived in isolation in the desert, it says, until the time of his public appearance to Israel. So that suggests, at the very least, they did not know each other as adults. But their lives were thrust together once more in God's providence. The appointed day of John's ministry had begun. We've already seen that in Matthew's gospel. Per God's commission, John came preaching repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan. And after some time, likely several months, not more than a year for sure, these second cousins were reunited as Jesus shows up. He's one more face in the crowd of people coming to John to be baptized by him. But of course, Jesus is not just another face in the crowd. His coming was special. You see in verse 13, it says, then Jesus arrived. That word for arrived, we've seen before. Paraginomai is the word. It means to show up as in the sense of appearing publicly. And it was used back in chapter 2, verse 1 of the Magi who showed up at Christ, after Christ's birth. They arrived in Jerusalem, it says. Same word. Their appointed time had come as determined by the star and that they showed up. The same was true of John the Baptist. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came and it's literally the same word, paraginomai. He arrived, he showed up at the precise time God had for him. The time of his public appearance had come. Now it's Christ's turn to show up, to arrive on the scene. It's kind of like watching a play that's titled after the main characters, but you don't see them for a while. If you've ever read Romeo and Juliet, the old Shakespeare play, Romeo and Juliet don't even show up as characters for quite a while. You're introduced to all these other characters first before you get to the title characters. But they serve a purpose. They're giving context for the play. They're showing, uh, setting up the relationship between Romeo and Juliet. Speaking of them, the whole reason their love story is so memorable is because we learn from all the other characters that they come from families who hate each other. That context is important. And in Matthew's gospel, from the Magi to John the Baptist, the scene has been thoroughly set for for Jesus to finally show up. He is the title character. And finally here, at the end of chapter 3, he he shows up. Then Jesus arrived, paraginomai. And from here on out in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will be featured in just about every scene. He is obviously the main character. But this first scene featuring the adult Jesus is quite unexpected, especially given what we already know about John's baptism from Matthew 3. He's already informed us about the nature of John's baptizing ministry. He was baptizing sinners for what? For repentance in preparation of the coming Messiah. John himself made it clear 
he's not the Messiah. Messiah is far greater than him. He's not even worthy to remove his sandals. John merely baptizes with water, but the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus arrives, we 100% expect John to be baptized by Jesus, right? Of course. We expect Jesus to show up and just take over and say to John, John, thank you so much. You've done a great job preparing all these disciples, baptizing all these people, but I'm here now. I'll take it from here. Your work here is done. But that's not what happens at all. Just the opposite. Jesus just simply submits himself to John and his baptism. And it truly is unexpected if you understand John's baptism. I, I, I truly don't remember the context, but I just have this old image in my mind. I think it's from like an old music video, but it, it was of a hammer slowly approaching a glass light bulb in slow motion. And even a child knows what's about to happen as the steel hammer inches toward this paper-thin glass. But then the, the second the hammer strikes the glass, what happens? The hammer shatters into a million pieces, and the glass remains unscathed. I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> Perhaps it's just because it's such an unexpected image. The exact opposite happens of what you're expecting in this slow-motion picture. That, that's probably why John's baptism of Jesus is likewise so memorable. All the four Gospels, all the disciples saw this as such a landmark moment in the ministry of Christ. It left a deep impression on them. They all think this was a big deal. Why is this such a big deal? Verse 13 sets up the scene. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But as you continue going through these verses, I want to help you see the, the true significance of Christ's baptism. Careful study of this passage is required, but but it yields two great truths of identity. And I want to show these to you. Two great truths of identity revealed here. And the first is this, how Jesus identifies with us. How Jesus identifies with us. Let's, let's read again, 13 through 15. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. So, verse 14, we see Jesus approach John for baptism, and he catches John off guard, because it's so unexpected. He responds with the question, and it basically boils down to why. That's our question too, like, why are you here? Why, why are you coming to me for baptism? Shouldn't you be baptizing me? Shouldn't the lesser be blessed by the greater? So what is going on here? The first, John is right in saying, I have need to be baptized by you. That's accurate. In Jesus, John was facing both a greater person and a greater baptism. John already confessed he's, he wasn't even worthy to remove the Messiah's sandals John merely baptized with water, symbolizing repentance. The Messiah would actually baptize or give the Holy Spirit, bringing about new birth. In all respects, Jesus was greater than John. And so he should be doing the baptizing. John's objection is founded. 
But still, before we answer why Jesus went to John for baptism, it's helpful to to think again and consider, did John already know Jesus was the Messiah? It's an interesting question. Did, Did he already know Jesus at all? And did he know that he was the Messiah? Was it revealed to him that, that Jesus, you know, his old second cousin, was the promised one of whom he preached? We already established Jesus and John were related. But did they know that? They didn't grow up together? Did, did they bump into one another at Passover every year in Jerusalem? We just don't know. But I think it is unimaginable that the parents of John the Baptist would not have told him about his own miraculous birth story, as well as that of Jesus. Elizabeth, the mother of John, uh, knew full well that her cousin Mary was carrying the promised Lord in her womb. And so despite their distance, despite not growing up together, it's quite hard to believe that John didn't have some knowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. The only challenger is found in the Gospel of John, which records John the Baptist twice saying of Jesus, I did not recognize him. That can be taken a couple of ways. It could simply mean he just wasn't well acquainted with Jesus in adulthood, just literally didn't, didn't know him anymore. More likely, it could mean that while John had reasons to believe Jesus was the Messiah, he was waiting for divine confirmation. As we will see shortly, God himself promised to John that he would identify the Messiah through a special sign. And until John saw that sign, he was reserving his final judgment. We'll come back to that. But the fact that John adamantly wanted to withhold his baptism from Jesus itself says a lot. One thing was clear that that John did not believe Jesus needed to repent. That's why he didn't want to baptize him. What was John's baptism for? Repentance. Jesus did not need to repent. He had no need to prepare his heart. Whatever John knew about Jesus, he knew he could not convict him of any sin. Christ simply tested out of this need for repentance. This forms a great contrast with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, we saw them last time as they came to Jesus or a couple times ago. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to John, rather, for baptism. But this is another group of people that John adamantly refused to baptize. He turned them away too, but for completely opposite reasons than he's turning Jesus away, or trying to at least. John refused to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. They didn't meet the one only requirement, which was just genuine repentance. But now he's turning away Christ or trying to for the opposite reason. He's too worthy for his baptism. John's baptism is not worthy of him. No doubt John never met anyone like this. There's no human who has ever been without the need of repentance. All are sinners. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Every single person John ever encountered needed to repent. And be baptized to restore their hearts to God the Father. Whether they knew that or not, that's what they needed. But in Jesus, John found someone who who didn't need that. This again leads us to believe that John at least had a strong inkling that Jesus was the Messiah. This still doesn't answer our question though. Because whatever John thought, we know better. We, We know for certain that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So even as we read this text, we, we ask still, okay, why is the Messiah going to John for this baptism of repentance, which he didn't even need? Well, Jesus himself answers the question in verse 15. He convinces John to baptize him. He, he makes him go through with it. And, and the reason Jesus gives to convince John that this needs to happen is in verse 15. Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So that's why there's your answer. But that's not that satisfying because it just leads to more questions. We just wonder like, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to, for this baptism to fulfill all righteousness? So we have to keep going. In Christ's response, he never denied that he was sinless. He never affirmed that he needed John's baptism for the sake of repentance. He simply compelled John to go through with it for both of their sakes as a means of fulfilling all righteousness. Some have suggested the reason Jesus was baptized by John was to just give an example of obedience as we ourselves now need to be baptized. And yeah, what Jesus does here gives an example, but that's not the main point. Others have suggested Jesus was baptized by John just to give us a picture of salvation. And yes, that's also true. I mean, his baptism can in a way prefigure his death and resurrection, but but again, that's not what's going on here. A key to understanding comes in this term righteousness. Diakosune is the word which translated uh, means righteousness, justice, and it refers to conformity to the claims of God. Conformity to the claims of God. It's the opposite of anomia, lawlessness. Conforming to all of God's commands. That is right or righteous. That is just, fitting, proper. That's what this word means. And so, yes, Jesus going to John for baptism was an obedience issue. Jesus knew this was his father's will. And it's only right for him to obey God's will. Christ is basically saying, like, John, this is the right thing to do. But what, what makes this right? Why did God the Father want this? On the surface, it, it doesn't sound right that the sinless Messiah would undergo a baptism that signifies repentance. Here we have to apply, though, what we've learned the past couple weeks about this, this word baptism, baptizo, what it signifies. Namely what? Identification. For us today, for example, to be baptized into Christ means we identify with Christ as our Lord and Savior. John's baptism in turn was an identification with sin. You're identifying with sin and repentance. And look, it's very true that Jesus had no need to identify with sin and repentance for himself. But the one fact that John overlooked was that Jesus was not being baptized for himself. That's not why God the Father wanted this. Jesus did not come to earth for himself. He didn't die on the cross for himself. Rather, as the Messiah, his entire ministry was vicarious, meaning substitutionary. The mission of the Messiah was to rescue sinners by being their stand-in, their substitute sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb of God to be sacrificed in our place. He came to live and die for sinners. 
And so per God's will, Jesus was to identify with the sinners he came to save, not just at the end of his ministry on the cross, but at the beginning of his ministry in the Jordan. That's what's going on here. Jesus is being baptized by John primarily as a means to identify with the sinners he came to save. And really, when you think about it, the ministry of Jesus was bookended by two baptisms. It starts in the Jordan where Jesus is baptized by John for repentance. It ends in Golgotha where Jesus is baptized by God with wrath for salvation. On the cross, Jesus would not just symbolically identify with sinners. He would fully identify with sinners. As we read this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's where God made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus would be the ultimate sin bearer, the Lamb of God, baptized in wrath so that we could be forgiven. And I'm not making up that baptism imagery. Twice, Jesus himself referred to his coming death on the cross as a baptism of suffering he must undergo. Mark 10, 38. And so altogether, what's going on here with Christ's baptism is the formal beginning of his messianic work as the substitute sacrifice for sinners before we could identify with him and be saved by his death and resurrection. He had to identify with us and our sin. In fact, it was always God's plan that the coming Messiah would, would fully identify with the sinners he came to save. You might recall how Isaiah 53 ends, verse 12, where God says of the Messiah, I will allow him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. He had to be numbered with the transgressors to, to save, to intercede for the transgressors. Romans 8.3 adds, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God's will here is not just about the Messiah being dunked under some water. His ministry was about coming into this world, taking on human flesh, living as a man, and though without sin, fully identifying with sin and sinners. From the start of his ministry, in this baptism to the end on the cross, Jesus identified with us, the subjects of his salvation. We're the ones who needed that repentance. He was doing this for our sake. And this was righteous. In God's eyes, this was right. This was fitting. This was proper per his plan in sending the Savior. And we can thank God for that. So already, we're building here a greater understanding of Christ's baptism, why it took place, and the significance behind it. This was a watershed moment, but to steal you know, the term from the infomercial. But wait, there's more. As if this wasn't enough, that the significance of his baptism runs even deeper. There's still another layer here. Because you may not have noticed verse 15, where Jesus used the first person, plural. Meaning, he didn't just say, permit it. 
for this is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. He said, permit this. This is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John had a part to play too. This was for both of them to fulfill their ministries. John's part, likewise, had to do with this theme of identity. For Jesus, to be baptized by John was the right thing to do because he came to identify with sinners. For John, to be the one to baptize Jesus was also the right thing to do because his job was to identify the Messiah. Let me explain this to you. Our second part, our second truth, how God identifies with Jesus. These two identity truths revealed here, how Jesus identifies with us. Now, secondly, how God identifies with Jesus. Verse 16 and 17, as Jesus is baptized, not only is Jesus identifying with us, but God is identifying with Jesus. And John the Baptist is the witness to it all. But before we get to verses 16 and 17, just real quick, turn over to John chapter 1. And the insight in that parallel passage will really shed light on what's going on here. So turn over to John chapter 1. The Apostle John opens his gospel, talking about Jesus and John the Baptist. But John focuses less on the deeds and actions of John the Baptist and more on his testimony, what he said. In fact, John doesn't actually record the the baptism of Jesus by John, the actual moment. He refers to it, but he actually spends more time recording the testimony of John about Jesus after the baptism. That will become clear in the context here, but let's hear John's own testimony about Jesus after his baptism. Look at verse 29 of John chapter 1. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So on this occasion, it's evident Jesus has already been baptized by John. You'll see that just a moment in the context. But here we have Jesus coming back to John a second time, after he's already been baptized. Why is Jesus coming back to John? We keep reading in John chapter 1, you find out that it's time for Jesus to start making some disciples himself. And at first order of business, he wants to steal a couple disciples away from John the Baptist. That would be namely Andrew and probably the apostle John himself. They were first disciples of John the Baptist. But then because of John's testimony, they start following Jesus, rightly so. The most likely order of events here is Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. Then he goes off for his 40-day wilderness temptation in the, uh, by Satan. And then he comes back to John to start making disciples. But now we see Jesus again. And now in John's mind, there's no doubt about who he is. Now he knows for sure he's the Agnes Day. He's the Lamb of God. John himself recognizes now that the substitutionary role of the Messiah as the ultimate sacrifice of sins or for sin. He says in verse 31, he says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And that's a really interesting verse. 
it seems to suggest that, that John, one of the reasons for his baptizing ministry was just to reveal the Messiah. That not only was he baptizing to prepare the hearts of the people by way of repentance, but he was baptizing as a way to, to like point out the Messiah. Is that true? Well, the next verses confirm. Verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. So here you, you can see how clear it is that the baptism has already taken place, but he's relating what happened when he baptized Jesus. Why though? What, what's the significance to this? Verse 33, he says again, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? Did did you ever know that John fully confirms as a prophet that it was actually God himself who sent him on this mission? This is partly a secret mission. At this appointed time, he was, a, he was supposed to just start baptizing people in the Jordan. God will send him. He just start baptizing people in the Jordan for repentance. Person after person after a person. That has a primary function. It's to restore the hearts of the people back to their father and to prepare them. Yes, but there is also here a, a hidden secondary function to John's baptizing ministry. Namely, to, to identify the Messiah. God told John... Basically, like, keep baptizing people. Finally, you're going to baptize someone, and you will see the Spirit coming down, descending, and remaining on that person. Then you will know you found the Messiah. That is the Messiah. That's how you will identify him. And it worked. This is how John identified Jesus. That's what happened when John baptized Jesus. The Spirit came down and rested upon him. And so now John, too, is able to fulfill his ministry. Verse 34. Now he can testify he's found the son of God. It's Jesus. Okay, go back to Matthew 3. We'll finish up with verses 16 and 17, but you'll, you'll see how they fit now. I bring all this up just to explain how, how John baptizing Jesus was fitting for both of them. This is how they both fulfilled their God-given ministries. John was to make ready the way of the Lord in more ways than one. And the most significant way that I think few Christians actually realize that he was meant to literally and personally identify the Messiah and bear witness of him. And that, that's a huge added layer to the baptism of Jesus by John. But as we read, it's, it's really not John himself who's testifying of Jesus as the Messiah. It's God himself who's testifying. John is just bearing witness. God here is the one now who's testifying that this Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. God is fulfilling his promise to John that he would identify his son through a sign, and that sign is the Spirit descending on a person as a dove. Now we can witness here God identifying with his son. This is how God identifies his son. Verse 16, It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. 
And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so as John plunged Jesus down into the, the frigid waters of the Jordan and brought him back up again, in that next moment, the heavens were opened. Now, from the parallels, it's clear there was a crowd around them. This was not a private baptism. There were plenty of people around. But it does not appear anyone else witnessed this sign, but only John the Baptist and Christ. It's just like the first martyr, Stephen, when he was being stoned to death. He had plenty of people around him, but God gave Stephen alone a little glimpse and to see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen alone saw that. No one else saw that. God allowed him to see a glimpse into the heavens. That's what's going on here. John alone sees this sign. But that impenetrable veil that separates earth from the glory of heaven was was cracked open by God himself. Why? To testify of his son. The first person involved was God the Spirit. And John witnessed the Spirit of God descending on Jesus as a dove. And it says, and lighting on him. Lighting or alighting is just an old term. It means that it rested upon him. This was the Spirit identifying Jesus. Now, I hope it's obvious to you that the Holy Spirit is not a dove or an animal. The Spirit is an invisible person of the Godhead and has no image or form. But for our sakes, somehow he needed to take an image to communicate his coming and chose a dove. Some form was needed to communicate the Spirit's presence to John. This is the only place in Scripture, by the way, that the Spirit is ever referenced or represented by a dove. Yes, a dove was sent out after the flood from the ark, but never is that suggested that represented the Holy Spirit. This is it. This is the only instance where the Spirit is seen as a dove. Why a dove? The text doesn't say, and the best you get is speculation. It's less important why the Spirit came in the image of a dove. And more, what's more important is just the coming of the Spirit on Jesus. Now, already we established how this was a sign. This was, in part, a sign for John the Baptist to enable him to identify and start pointing out the Messiah. But at the same time, the Spirit also came upon Jesus for power. As we already mentioned, that this was not Jesus becoming the Messiah. This is not Jesus becoming divine. He was the divine man from birth. He, he was already the pre-existent God made flesh. Matthew already said that this child is Emmanuel. He's God with us from birth. There's simply no hint in scripture that that Jesus was deified at his baptism. The spirit does not come upon Jesus to make him divine or to enhance his divine nature. His divine nature was always fully intact, never lost, never diminished. His divine nature needed no strengthening. But the same cannot be said of his human nature. Jesus was one person with two natures, a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. In coming to earth, he took on a real human body and human nature. His divine nature was never lost, never diminished in any way, but it was veiled by his humanity. The whole point of the incarnation was for Jesus to live as a human. He lived in the power of his human body and human nature. Which means he had divine nature, but he was not expressing it. He was not relying on it. He wasn't cheating. 
This is why he's our example. Even when faced with trials and temptations, he overcame in the power of his humanity, like we are supposed to do. Now, Christ's human nature was sinless. It was not tainted by sin after the fall. That's part of his virgin birth. He inherited a a pure human nature like that of Adam before the fall. But even a pure human nature is beset with weakness, just by definition. Not sin, but weakness. But it was God's plan for the Messiah to bear witness the power of God because he was the God-man. Wielding the power of God was going to be part of Christ's testimony that he is the divine Messiah. But therefore, since Jesus was not relying on his divine nature, he did need the power of the Holy Spirit to put on display the power of God, just like we do. Jesus was already indwelt by the Spirit from birth, no doubt. But at his baptism, the Spirit is pictured coming upon him, anointing him with power, for the beginning of his active ministry. And it's not a coincidence that only after this did Jesus start performing signs and wonders. These were meant to bear witness that he truly was filled with the Spirit of God. He is the anointed one and that his testimony is true. Christ himself later confirms this. We get to Matthew 12 and the Pharisees claim he's working wonders and casting out demons by the power of the devil. But Christ responds back, By what power is he doing these things? Matthew 12, 28, he says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is exactly how he worked his wonders and cast out demons by the Spirit of God, showing them that the kingdom has come. Acts 10, 38, Peter affirmed, he said, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You know, part of Jesus identifying with us meant living as a man, living as a true man with all the weaknesses and limitations, not sin, but the weaknesses and limitations of humanity. But for his active ministry, he would live as the ultimate spirit-filled man. And that's why the spirit came upon him. But we're not quite done because lastly, we see how God the Father has a role here, likewise, in bearing witness of the identity of Jesus. In addition to the Spirit coming down on Jesus, a voice comes from the heavens. It's only three times in the New Testament where God audibly speaks. Each time he testifies of Jesus. Here he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When God says here, it's not trivial. It's meant to purposely evoke God's own language from the Old Testament concerning the promised Messiah, which only further identifies him. God's words here harken back to Isaiah 42, verse 1, where God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42 verse 1 is very significant in that it marks the beginning of Isaiah's servant songs where he tells of this coming servant of God who will save God's people. This servant will be well-pleasing to God. He will be God's beloved and God would identify him by anointing him with the spirit, empowering him to serve God by saving his people. 
Only later, of course, in Isaiah 53, that later servant song, do we realize that this Savior would would serve God's people by dying for them, by suffering in their place. This too will become clear in Christ's ministry. But here, God himself is identifying Jesus as his beloved servant. That servant is Jesus. And beyond a servant, though, he's also God's son. This is my son. That harkens back to Psalm 2, where we learn of God's anointed one, who is his beloved son. We read Matthew's gospel as we go on. We'll see all the human characters wrestle and struggle with the identity of Jesus as the son of God. Could it really be true? But to us, the reader, it's made clear from the very beginning, coming from the mouth of God the Father himself. It gets no clearer. This is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. This is the beginning of Christ's saving ministry. And it starts with a baptism, a baptism that's meant to identify Jesus with us, that he could be our savior, and also meant to identify God with Christ, his son. This was God's plan. And for us today, reflecting back on this momentous occasion, it it quickly begs one question. Have you now identified with Jesus? He came to die for us to be our savior. First Timothy 4.10 says he's the savior of all men, meaning he's the one and only savior. There's no other savior. He came to to save mankind. To be saved, though, you must identify with him. You do that by faith and by believing in him where you come to recognize his true identity, that he really is the sinless Savior, the Son of God, the divine Messiah, and you come to trust in his work, this finished work of identifying with us, dying for us, rising for us, to put away our sins and reconcile us to God. You must, by faith, identify with Jesus today, not just as the Savior, but as your Savior. You have to go that distance. If you don't, you will only identify with him as judge. Don't forget what John the Baptist said about Jesus in like the verse right before, a couple verses before, back in verse 12. He's speaking of Jesus and his coming. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's only right. It's only just. It's only fitting for God to judge us for our sins. If that's all God did, he would be perfectly just. He would do no wrong. But thankfully, his mercy is what led him to send a savior. You need to call upon that mercy today. Like Psalm 2 ends and says, do homage to the son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So have you found your refuge in Christ? Now I would add another response here. If you have, have you been baptized in his name? Baptism today is not a meaningless ceremony for us. It is symbolic. Yes, but it's still purposeful and powerful. Because this is how you now primarily identify with him. How you show it. He first identified with you and your sins. He was baptized first for you, even unto death. Now he calls you to identify with him. To fly his banner. To take his name. 
Christian. It literally means like little Christ, follower of Christ. You are to represent him now to the world. Take his name to the nations. You do this in many ways. The first step is baptism. Have you done this? If you haven't, if you claim to follow Christ and you haven't, you just need to realize you've not actually taken even the first step of discipleship. It's literally the first baby step. Water baptism does not save us. It does not contribute to our salvation in any way. But what right do you have to take his name if you haven't even taken the first step of obedience and identification? Do so immediately. Honor your Savior. Express your faith. Identify with him as he tells you to by baptism. And finally, I would ask, is Jesus your beloved? He's God's beloved. Why? Because of his supreme worth, the worth of his person, now the worth of his work, for which all creation will sing his praises for all eternity. But is that going to include you? Have you looked upon him and seen him and come to love him, the Savior who loved you first? We're we're sinners. We're not even worthy of his love, but he gives it anyway. And he even accepts our imperfect love in return. It's like Jesus said to Peter after he restored him. Do you love me? Do you love him? Are you well pleased in him? Is he your beloved? And and then do you show it? God showed his love to us in sending his son for us. And we've now received that love offering. What do you give in return? Not to repay him. That's not even possible. But just because you love him. You want to offer something back to him. And I'll tell you to give your life. Jesus came first identifying with us and and living for us. Now it's our turn to identify with him and live for him. He's not done giving gifts. He gave now his very spirit, that same spirit that empowered his active ministry. He gives to us now by that very spirit then. Let us follow this Jesus, bear his name, and show him that he is our beloved. Pray with me. Our great God in heaven, we, we aim to do that this morning and with our lives to show uh, the world and to show you that Christ is our Lord and our Savior and that we do love him. We love because he first loved us. We know we were unlovely and unlovable. We were sinners cut off from you. We all were those sheep who've gone astray and who found their own way, seeking our identity apart from our creator. We cast off you, Lord, we, we dethroned you from our hearts, wanting to live our own ways. All of us are guilty as charged. Only by your mercy and your love first that, that we can be saved, redeemed, put in our rightful place. That's where Christ now reigns on the throne of our heart. And we worship him. We follow him. We take his name and we represent it to the world. We thank you, Lord, for sending the Christ, for baptizing him to identify with us, to finish the work he started that day, that we might be saved. And I pray for any here who've who've not yet called upon him, that they would be convicted of of their need for John's baptism. They need to repent. But may they see this morning the Savior who came to give them the greater baptism to be saved, to be forgiven, to be born again and made new. May they find in Christ their their Savior today. And may all of us follow him with, with all of our hearts. May we resolve to give you all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength because we love you. Uh, you're the God of love who loved us first. We, we love you, Lord, and, and Christ is our beloved now. May we show it with our lives as we take the name of Christ 
to this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.